0: Matthew with you, but before we do so, let's pray and go to the Lord and ask his favor and his grace. Our God, we do want to hear you speak to us what an appropriate song to sing as we open up your word for these next few moments before we come to your table. And we do ask you to speak to us. You have spoken clearly in your word as we read it, but what we're asking for our God, what is the longing of our heart? is that You would speak to us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That Your truth would not be outside of us, but it would be something that is inside of us. That the love of God would not be something that we simply agree to, but it would be a reality in our hearts and in our lives. That a love for Your Son would be the mark of us as Your children. We pray that You would use Your Word this morning to strengthen, produce, and maybe even in some, create that love for You. We commit our time to You, and we pray in the matchless name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 is the next section of Scripture, and the portion of Matthew that we will be addressing over the next couple of weeks. It has, once again, been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We keep taking extended breaks, welcome breaks, I know, because of the Word of God being opened up to other portions, to our blessing and benefit, but nonetheless, it is a joy to return here to Matthew this morning. Now, Matthew has, for 21 chapters, labored to present to the Jews and to us the glory of Christ and to prove that He is, in fact, the King of Israel, that He is the Messiah, that He is even the Son of God. From the opening chapters, Matthew showed us that He is the rightful heir to David's throne. He is the promised Davidic King. He is the miraculous child that came from the Virgin Mary, planted in her womb by the Holy Spirit who overshadowed her, so that He is the holy thing, God with us. He is the king of the Jews who was recognized by the Magi in chapter 2. He is the king of the Jews who was feared by Herod. He is the one announced by John the Baptist. And with his appearing as the king, the kingdom of God was made manifest to Israel." After being confirmed by the Father and the Spirit at his baptism, he then launched on a ministry that continued to unfold the glories of his person and the kingdom that he had come to announce and to bring to his people. And he demonstrated the power of the kingdom throughout his entire ministry with unequivocal clarity. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. He calmed the storms. He fed thousands. Moreover, he forgave sins of those who came to him with true faith. He taught not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but he taught with unequaled authority, equal to the authority of God himself. He exposed the error and the emptiness of the religious leaders, and the religion of contemporary Judaism, that, as it had so often, had much form, but little to no substance. Now, in response to this glorious ministry, the people of the land were generally amazed at his teaching and his works, and they largely saw him as someone sent from God, indeed a prophet of God." although their amazement fell short of saving faith and a true grasp of the implications of his person. The leaders, whose hypocrisy and error was continually being exposed by Jesus, responded with antagonism and increasing hatred as his influence with the people continued to increase throughout his ministry. It reached in some ways an apex in chapter 12 when Jesus... Healed a man. And the religious leaders accused this work that was a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God as being done by the power of the evil one, Beelzebub, Satan, the devil. Their rejection of him was indeed deep and complete. Now, all of this has now reached ahead in the final week of his life on earth, which really begins in verse, or chapter 21 of Matthew. In this final week, he enters into Jerusalem during the time of the Passover, and he enters into Jerusalem amid the praises of his people who are shouting to him, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. It was a messianic fervor among those who were welcoming him into this final week of his life. Now while the anticipation of the people is at a fever pitch, the hatred of the leaders is also burning its hottest. And Jesus knows it's only a short while before they will all turn on Him essentially and be crying out for His blood. So He knows, as He's told His disciples many times leading up to this week, that He has only a short time remaining before He will be rejected and put to death by crucifixion. So beginning in chapter verse 21, or excuse me, verse 28 of chapter 21, he gives three parables that address Israel's rejection of God's will and Israel's rejection of God's Son. Now he is primarily addressing the religious leaders, but by extension, the warning and the condemnation extends to all of the unbelieving among the crowds and throughout all the ages. Now, while our parable this morning is the third in this trilogy and extends all the way to verse 14, it easily divides into three parts, and we're going to address only the first part this morning, verses 1 through 7. And in here, that's these few verses, Jesus will address the tragedy of rejecting God's grace and God's infinite joy in His kingdom. Though primarily, again, against the Jews, it addresses all who are here of the glory of Christ, the unfathomable promises of the gospel, yet neglect to lay hold of them. They neglect to come all the way to Christ, and they neglect the joy that is offered to them. So let's begin by reading the entire parable, and then we'll go back to verse 1, and look at the first seven verses this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's table. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast." Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Go back up to verse one, and let's notice this morning a tragic rejection of the kingdom of joy. And let's note first, then, also the parable, the parable, and noting its context. Now Jesus again is still addressing the crowds whom Luke 19.48 in a parallel account says are hanging on His every word. In other words, they're giving Him their rapt attention. They are stunned by His ministry of the word and by His works of power. And the chief priests are also among the crowds to whom He is speaking. They are filled here with rage and fear at this glorious Christ. They are enraged at Him because they knew, as verse 45 of chapter 21 tells us, that He was speaking these parables specifically against them. They understood that and they wanted Him, therefore, dead more than they ever have. In all of His parables and His teaching, He's humiliating them before the people as well as exposing their guilt, their hypocrisy, and the judgment that is coming on them all. They're also afraid of Him because they knew that the people held Him in such high regard. Therefore, they were not willing at that moment to come and to take Him by force lest they start a riot among the people who would turn also on them. So, in effect, they were cowards. They felt that He was wrong. They considered Him a blasphemer and yet they were unwilling to act on it but rather chose to go the path of deception. Lying against him, ultimately condemning him by a false trial. But they were angry and they were afraid. And the fact is, however, that though many of the people were hanging on his words and were astonished at his teaching, according to Mark 11, many of them, like the Pharisees, were also unbelieving. And we must be careful here when we talk about the crowd. Sometimes we talk about this as if they're all the same, as if there's a homogenous sort of thinking among all of the people who followed him. And there weren't. There were various responses among the crowd. Some paid little attention. Some thought of him as a prophet. Some thought he was maybe the Messiah. There were a variety of responses. But all of them, and even the best of them, would ultimately prove to be only surface deep, to be incomplete, to be insufficient for saving faith. That is to say, their response to him, though it seemed to be attendant with sincerity, was really only surface level. They saw something unique in Christ. They realized he was, in some sense, again, a prophet from God. They possibly, and indeed some did, see him as the Messiah and the Son of David. But they fell short of grasping him truly as he was, that is, the Son of God. They did not get that, nor its full implications. And so while they had amazement and wonder, it was not truly faith in Him. And that, again, will be shown in just a few days at the end of this week. Now, why then is He speaking to pair these parables to them? Well, in chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 10... Jesus said, as he began to give his parables to them, beginning with the parable of the sower, that he spoke to the people in parables essentially to conceal truth from those who do not have spiritual eyes and ears to know what God is saying through them. In other words, to keep from them spiritual truth. So he would give a parable to the crowd and then afterwards he would go to his disciples and he would explain the parable privately and then also give them other parables. In other words, he revealed to his own and concealed it from the crowds. However, in this case, the explanation of the parable is attendant with the parable itself. In other words, he fully intends these parables to be understood. He's concealing nothing. But he's exposing everything. And he's doing so in a way that has strikingly powerful truth in powerful imagery. So he says here in verse 2, as he gives this third parable, that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now remember that a parable is a story that sets spiritual truth along events and circumstances ...and experiences that would be well understood by his hearers. In this case, the kingdom of heaven is like a king then who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now as today, weddings in ancient Israel were both common and significant events. They were a time of great celebration. They were a time of abundance and a time of joy. The evening before the event of a marriage, a legal contract was drawn up and signed by the bridegroom and the bride's parents... In which the bride and then after these events the bridegroom would go and receive his bride from her home and then they would travel together with a procession of both bridal parties of the bridegroom and the bride to the place of the feasting which was usually held at the bridegroom's own home or the home of his family. This often took place at the end of the day, which is noted in Matthew 25. If you remember the parable of the journals, virgins, it was nighttime, and the issue there was oil in their lamps. The point being the need to be ready for Christ's return. But it gives a picture here of the process of these wedding events. Now, once they arrived at the feast, all of the family and friends of the bridegroom, the bride, the wedding parties, and all invited guests engaged in anywhere from 1 to 14 days of festivity that included music and dancing, sometimes even games, but all with celebration and abundant food. Now, because the preparations were so elaborate, the invitation process usually included two phases. There were two phases to it. The first was a general invitation that went out and invited those who they wanted to come that there was going to be a wedding event and their presence was both requested and expected. That was the first invitation. There was then a second invitation that was more specific and essentially that's what went out when all the preparations were finished. They had been made and it was essentially time uh, the time to say, come Everything is prepared for you. The time of the event has come. The time of the feast is at hand. If you'll notice in verse 3, in fact, it says, He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited already, referring to the first invitation. He says the same thing in verse 4 Tell those who had been invited. This then now is the second invitation, a time where the king is saying, All is prepared come to the feast. Now let's look closely at the parable itself. Notice in verse 3 then a gracious offer of the king. Having made all of the provisions and prepared the feast, the king then sends his slaves to go again and give the second specific invitation to come. Everything is ready. The time is at hand. And it is an invitation of great honor to be asked to the feast by the king. And it is a time in which there was an expectation or an anticipation of great joy and celebration. And now the reality is because of the length of the celebration, it was somewhat of a sacrifice for some of the people, the guests, to go. Even though some of these here might be uh, landowners and fairly well-to-do, as noted by the group they're compared to in verse 9, the highways and byways, etc., that the uh, slaves are then sent out to find. He, nonetheless, to go to a wedding feast was somewhat of a sacrifice. They would have to leave their place of business. They would have to leave their homes and commit their time to the wedding guest. But this is a high honor. This is not any invitation, though that would be enough for them to make the sacrifice. This is indeed an invitation from the king. It is a celebration that would pale every other celebration, make every other celebration pale in comparison to the abundance and the joy and the provisions that would be there. But even more than that, it is the duty of the subject to respond to such a high honor extended from the hand of the king. Therefore, their response is quite shocking at the end of verse 3. It says, when they received this second now invitation from the king, they were unwilling to come. Essentially then, they were reneging on their original acceptance that was from the first invitation. Now the indolence and the foolishness of such a response can hardly be calculated. In fact, such a response to the king would be seen very near as an act of sedition or rebellion and treachery against the uh, king. It could be counted as a crime. The rebuffing of the invitation of the king then is without excuse. And it would have been shocking for the hearers to hear of such audacity on the part of these invited guests. However, more shocking than that is the patience of the king. Look at verse 4. It says that after he was refused again, he sent out other slaves, telling those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat and livestock. All are butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And this is amazing. The expectation would be that after the first rebuffing of the king's slaves that he would then react with judgment. That he would react with swift discipline. Just think about you. If you invited someone to your wedding, you invited someone to a very important event, you extended that honor and they refused to come when the event came, how you would feel. Now multiply that times and times again. Here it being the invitation of a king. And yet what is amazing is that he acts in an even more self-effacing manner than he did the first time. Now it is a snub and affront to the honor and the dignity of the highest ruler in the land. Yet again, he shows patience. He shows long-suffering. He shows, in essence, mercy to these guests who were ungrateful for the opportunity to participate in the celebration of his son, And so he's coercing them. Listen to what he says. He says, please, in effect, come, I have prepared everything for you. Look, I'm offering to you a great opportunity of feasting and of joy. This is a great privilege. Please come to my feast and do not reject a second time. And this is an incredibly humbling request by the king. And that his humility alone should have compelled them to reconsider. The very self-effacing attitude of the king should have caused them remorse. And should have caused them humiliation. And should have caused them to reconsider their decision. And go to the wedding feast. And yet, the story becomes only more shocking. Notice thirdly, the unspeakable apathy and aggression of the invited guest. Verses 5-6. through six. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Now this is astounding. This is absolutely astounding. And it runs parallel to the response of the vine growers. You'll remember in verse 35, when the landowner... Vineyard owner sent his slaves to receive the produce of his vineyard. It says in verse 35 the vine growers took his slaves, and they beat one, and killed another, and stoned a third, and they did the same thing to yet another group. And so they are here acting in the utmost treachery. This is an unspeakably egregious offense. It is a contemptuous insult. It is a high offense against the king. I want you to notice these two responses just briefly. Notice the first one. We could say it is a response of dismissive apathy. He simply says they paid no attention to him or they neglected his appeal and they went their way, one to his own field and the other to his business. In other words, they simply ignored him. They simply disregarded the invitation as unimportant. They were not compelled by the honor of the request they were not moved by the honor of the king, nor were they driven by the prospect of the great feast and the joy that lay ahead of them. Their daily business and their interests seemed to them to be of greater importance. Now, Jesus, on another occasion, in, recorded in Luke 14, will note similar excuses to not go to a great feast when being invited. He says this, just listen, in verse 18. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife and therefore for that reason I cannot come. All excuses. All neglecting the great honor of being invited to a great feast. Now the term here behind paid attention to as the basic meaning of just that to have no care for to neglect to be unconcerned it speaks essentially of a hard attitude of a hard attitude the inner response of the invited guest that produced the fruit of the refusal again there was nothing in them that compelled them to respond that compelled them to make any sacrifice or any effort to come to the feast They certainly had no love for their king or affection for his son. And when they heard it, they considered their own interest to be of greater importance. And so they rejected him. They were essentially compelled here by self-interest. Their world, their pursuits were their sole concern. So what does the king do? Look... Or look at the second response, excuse me. The first one simply showed apathy towards the king's invitation. But the next one is even more amazing. It was an arrogant hostility and murder. It says the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Now who are the rest here? The rest are a second subgroup of those who received the first general invitation. Whereas the first group simply ignored the king, the second group takes it even farther and attacks the king's messengers. Again, this is an act of sedition. It is an act of rebellion against the king. And the degree of treachery is almost without measure. And think of this. He is not calling them to battle. He's not calling them to war. He's not calling them to confront them in any way. He's inviting them to take part in a celebration. He's inviting them to take part in a wedding a feast, a joyous event that makes their action all the more horrendous and all the more damnable. The term behind seize them speaks in this case of their being taken by violent, a force, a hostile act of aggression. Note first then they mistreated them. They seized them and mistreated them or some of you have the ESV, it says treated them shamefully, which is a good Translation of the term, it speaks of treating someone badly with an attitude of great arrogance. In fact, the noun form of this term is where we get our English word hubris, which speaks of pride. If somebody has great hubris, then they're very arrogant, they're very proud. That's the idea behind this term here. It is violence, but violence that is spurned by great arrogance towards those in whom the violence is enacted against. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, Paul uses this term in the context of his suffering for the gospel. He says he was mistreated at Philippi, treated shamefully and hostily by those who were opposed to the gospel. In Luke 18, 32, Jesus uses this term and anticipates being mistreated by the religious leaders. However, this term in the case of Jesus also goes far beyond merely false legal proceedings and it speaks against Uh, to the attitude to want to cause him shame, to want to cause him hurt, to want to cause him great suffering, the greatest suffering they can. In fact, Luke 18 says this, he will be handed over to the Gentiles and mocked. Why mocked? What's behind that? It is arrogance, scorn, and abuse. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon and which would eventually culminate in his death. And so it is with these slaves. They come to bring an announcement of great joy and yet they are treated with disdain. They are mocked and some of them even killed. Look at secondly, after they humiliated some, they then killed them. And again, the parallel is to the landowner than the slaves that were sent and mistreated by those who should have received them with joy. However, the situation here is more perplexing than it is in chapter 21. In chapter 21, the motive can very easily be identified or discerned as greed, as a desire to take what is wrongfully theirs, what belongs to another. But that's not the case here. As mentioned earlier, the slaves of the king are not coming to receive anything from the people but to offer them to participate great joy that's going to come from the king. They're turning down a great honor with violence. It's harder to discern a motive here behind such a murderous act. So why did they kill him? It's simply an act of pure rebellion. It is simply one of the most egregious Acts of contempt for the king and his authority and his honor that could be conceived. There's no other reason to kill his slaves other than that they held the king and his honor in the highest possible contempt and hatred. And this is shocking. Again, this is shocking. No one would have expected this hearing these words from Jesus. Jesus. And no doubt those listening to the parable would agree with whatever action the king took against this kind of rebellion and insurrection. No doubt that they were thinking, though it's not recorded for us here, much along the lines as those who heard in verse 41... Uh, In chapter 21, after they heard the parable of the treachery of the landowners, they said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons." And no doubt, those who heard the parable here would expect the king to act with equal rage, rage that was equal to the crime. Notice lastly here then, the righteous response of the king in verse 7. What did he do? Well, The king was enraged. We would expect that. And he sent his armies and he destroyed those murderers and he set their city on fire. Completely expected, completely understandable response. And again, no doubt his hearers agreed with him fully. It would only be right for the monarch, the ruler of the land, to react with the greatest hostility towards such an act of his subjects. And so in this case, the king sent his army to destroy. And notice, he destroys not only those who were directly involved with the killing, but he had destroyed the entire city by setting it on fire, which implies the shared guilt of everyone there, at least by complicity or in some way an accomplice to such a dastardly deed. So there is the parable. No doubt they were in shock at the events that He's unfolded before them. But what does it mean? But what does it mean? Let's note lastly then here the meaning of the parable. The king in verse 2 is obviously God the Father, and the son is Jesus. Jesus has already identified himself as the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist identifies Jesus again as the bridegroom and John the Baptist identifies himself as the friend of the bridegroom who has a great rejoicing at his presence. Paul identifies Jesus as the same in Ephesians 5, saying he is indeed the husband of the church. This then is speaking of the Father and the Son. The invitation to the wedding feast is the offer of God to His people through His prophets to participate in the blessings of the kingdom. And the prophets often anticipated this great time of joy in the environment of a wedding feast as they looked forward to the great blessing that God had planned for His people. He speaks of this feast in Isaiah 25, 6 and in Isaiah 62, 5. We won't turn there, but you can mark those down. Now, some see here a division in chapter versus, in verse 3 as re, uh, referring to the Old Testament prophets and in verse 4 as a reference to John the Baptist Jesus and some of the New Testament prophets. This is possible... Since Jesus already used the imagery of slaves in that same way in verses 34-36 through of chapter 21. However, there's no need to be so precise here. The basic point is simply this. That God has continually reached out to His people and they have continually rejected Him. That's the point. And again, it's going to reach its culmination in the crucifixion. And in fact, when Jesus excoriates the Jews for their hypocrisy, the Jewish leaders, he's going to mention both groups in chapter 23, verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tomb of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Say, we wouldn't have killed them if we were there. Verse 31, You testify against yourself. You are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your guilt, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore I am sending to you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. And you will per- be, persecute them from city to city. He's referring to the rejection of his people against all of God's messengers. Particularly those who will bring the message of Christ To his people after his death and his resurrection. In other words, it is a rejection that will continue far from just his earthly ministry here to the ministry that will come through his people after he returns to be with the Father. And though many will believe initially, most will reject even killing God's people. And so he's going to bring destruction, which he refers to in verse 7. That he will destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. Which is a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now the original hearers would not have understood it that way specifically when he first mentioned it. However, his original readers would. This was written in the 80s AD. The temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in the 70s. They would clearly have understood this wrath that he was warning of there as the destruction that God brought upon his people in the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. In that great culmination of the Jewish rebellion, over one million Jews were destroyed by the Roman army under the leadership of Titus. Thousands and thousands more were crucified in the most inhumane and shameful ways. Homes and businesses were destroyed and at the end the temple was burned. It was a complete destruction. It was a devastating destruction. It was an annihilating destruction that God brought because of the disobedience of his people. And although he's giving it explicitly here, he will implicitly refer to this coming destruction two other times after this event. Again, in chapter 23, verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate he says the same thing to his disciples who after marveling at the temple jesus tells them in verse 2 of chapter 24 do you not see all these things truly i say to you not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down destruction is coming god has reached out to you with patience God has reached out to you with long suffering and you have continued to refuse Him and reject Him. Therefore, God's rejection of you is coming. Now that's the meaning of the parable. I want to spend the last few minutes here before we come to the Lord's table noting the principles that apply to us all. First is this. God is patient and long suffering and pleading with sinners. God is patient. Romans ten twenty one. Paul says, speaking to the Jews there primarily, quoting from Isaiah sixty five two. God says through the prophet, "All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. How long did God endure with His people in spite of their rejection and their rebellion of Him?" He endured it for years and hundreds of years as they refused to submit to his law. He would send his prophets and they would kill them. He would send more prophets and they would kill them. And yet God continued in pleading with his people. It was only after great and continuous provocation that God finally brought destruction to them. After much waiting and much warning. And consider how patient God is to us. There is not a moment that goes by that all of the wicked deeds and the blasphemies and the immorality and the acts of violence are not continually before the eyes of God. There is not a sinful thought in the entire world that is not continually before the eyes of God. There is not a wicked deed in all of the world that is not continually before the eyes of God and yet He has stayed His judgment. He has not destroyed the world. He is patient. The fact that we exist is a demonstration of the great patience of God. Not only with Israel, but with the entire world. He continually is waiting and waiting and patient towards sinners to repent. Though they reject and blaspheme His Son. Now I want to make a few notes about the rejection of Christ. That are drawn also from the attitudes of the parable. First, is this not all rejection looks the same. Some rejection is violent opposition that God patiently puts up with. Some is silent apathy, as we saw among those in the first group. Or some, it's simply an inward refusal to humble oneself before God. But God sees all unbelief in his son as hostility against him. Romans 8:7. The mind set on the flesh that does not subject itself to the law of God, is that hostility with God. Not all rejection looks the same. Not all rejection is as clear and as easy to be discerned. But all unbelief is rejection of God's Son. Some reject by ignoring, ignoring some by opposing. But everybody who fails to lay a hold of His grace has rejected Him. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Written actually in response to this passage. He says this, and I'm going to quote it because it's well said. There are thousands of hearers of the gospel who derive from it no benefit whatever. They listen to it Sunday after Sunday and year after year and do not believe to the saving of the soul. They feel no special need of the gospel. They see no special beauty in it. They do not perhaps hate it or oppose it or scoff at it. But they do not receive it into their hearts. They, like other, like other things, far better. Their money, their businesses, their pleasure, all are far more interesting subjects to them than their souls. It is an awful state of mind to be in, an awful but common situation. Let us search our hearts and take heed that it is not our own. Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. Multitudes will find themselves in hell, not because so much they openly broke the Ten Commandments as because they make light of the truth. Christ died for them on the cross, but they neglected Him. Now read that quote for this reason, that God's long-suffering and patience against sin is so often missed. Interpreted, so often misinterpreted. Sometimes God's patience against sinners causes a sinner to have greater security in their sin. Sometimes God's long suffering is seen as weakness or as if He condoned the actions of those who are rejecting Him in silent or open unbelief. Listen to Psalm 10 3 through 5. For the wicked boast of his heart's desire. And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for his adversaries, he snorts at them. In other words, they continue to act wickedly and arrogantly because your judgments are not immediate. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. God's patience is patient towards sinners, but that patience is not a condoning of their sin. It is an opportunity for them to come to a place of repentance. And how often the unbelieving misinterpret that. Again, God's patience should lead to repentance, but it often leads to judgment. He says in Genesis six three, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever." What happened in Genesis six? You remember, the flood, the flood. He is patient to a point. He is patient to a point. Listen to Romans 2.4 But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It is repentance that should be the end of God's patience. There was a famous debate between an atheist, and it's, of course, been repeated many times over. And in it, this atheist offers these blasphemies to God, these curses, as it were, to God. And he dares God to strike him dead. And then at the end of it, he goes, huh? must be no God. I'm still here. Wouldn't your God strike me dead to prove His name? And the response to that by the Christian was, no. It is not an example of God's non-existence. It is an example of His great patience towards you. Wrath is coming, but now you are receiving great patience. I can think of that in my own life. Shortly before God actually brought me to His Son, to saving faith in Him, there was a period of great anger toward God, filled with all kinds of blasphemy, such that even my unbelieving friends would say to me, whoa, you know, relax a little bit. And yet God was patient with me and shortly after brought me to my knees in saving faith in his son. Paul said the same thing. His life of blasphemy and his life of violence against the church was a demonstration of God's great patience towards him. Knowing that he would eventually bring him to himself and put him to service in his kingdom. The point then is that God is patient with sinners, but secondly, that God's patience, though great, is not eternal. It has an end. It has an end. It does not last forever. Second Peter three nine says this, or three three through nine says this. Let me read it. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water." But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is what? Patient toward You Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How much arrogance and blasphemy and sin is multiplied over and over because God stays his hand of execution on a guilty world and on guilty sinners. And yet the time is coming when that patience will come to an end. And everything will be destroyed. And in this sense, the destruction of the Jewish temple, anticipated here by Jesus coming to fruition in 70 AD, is really a foreshadowing of the destruction of the whole world who remain settled in their rebellion against the king and his son. You'll remember that Jesus said that when he returns, he will, in verse 41 of chapter 13, remove all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness out of his kingdom and throw them into the furnace of fire. God is patient, but we must not misinterpret God's patience in our own lives or in light of the world that rejects him. The very end of Scripture is the final destruction of the world and the removal of sinners. And we need to be reminded of this, beloved, and we need to think of it often. We need to remind, as I'm sure you do, but let me exhort you to continue in that, those whom we know who continue to take advantage of the patience of God and reject Him, that patience will come to an end. There is destruction that is coming. And we say that with great grief and sadness, though we long to see Christ exalted on that day. And beloved, knowing that the world will come to an end in that way ought to define our attitude toward it and sinners in it. It was shared to me this morning that somebody is learning more patience in particular sins in the world and in family members that frustrate them, that cause them great irritation. And they're saying, they said they were learning to love them more. And one of the ways we learn to love them more and to demonstrate the heart of God is by laying hold of their end. Knowing that destruction is their end. Destruction is what they have to anticipate Great suffering if they do not come to Christ. Knowing this, we ought to have compassion on them. And we ought to feel great pity for them. And we ought to suffer long with them in bringing them the gospel of Christ. They do not need our scorn. They need a witness of the one who is willing to take their sin away if they turn to him. Lastly, and this will be the last thing before we come to the table. Something we draw from the Lord's parable here. The full glory of the kingdom celebration and wedding feast will be realized when Christ returns and ultimately at the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we remember in the Lord's table this morning. Ultimately, what is being anticipated here, though it has present application of entering into the joy of salvation, into the joy of the kingdom, into the joy of the presence of the Holy Spirit, though it has present application to having forgiveness of our sin, confidence of being cleansed by His blood, and present fellowship with Christ and the Father and the Spirit, ultimately, what He's anticipating here is His return. His return is recorded for us in, in the context of a wedding feast at Revelation 19. Listen as I, re, I read some of these words. And this is, of course, right before these words are given, the destruction that's going to come upon those who are still in rebellion at the end of this age. He says this, He says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, the angel speaking to John, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true words of God. It is an anticipation when we come around the table this morning of the Lord's return and joining Him in this great marriage feast of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, it is that... Feast that will take place before He establishes His kingdom on earth for a thousand years during a glorious rejuvenation of the earth and the glorious reality of His presence among His resurrected saints of all ages. At a different time, He gives the same picture in Revelation chapter 21 verse 2. Notice this is a different event here. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. It is an anticipation that we have of the great time of being reunited fully with our God on a new heaven and on a new earth. And we anticipate that. When we take the bread, we remember that his body was broken to secure this promise for us. When we drink the cup, we remember and proclaim His blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sin that we might participate in His very own inheritance that He received from the Father. Beloved, this is our end. This is our end. And this is so glorious in contradiction to what the world offers, which is things that are passing away, passing pleasures, those things that don't ultimately satisfy the deep longing of our heart. And God offers us something more. He offers sinners Himself at His own cost to drink of the rivers of life at His own cost that He purchased for them. And therefore, everyone hopefully here who knows Him says these words Revelation 22:17 With the spirit the spirit and the bride say come and let those who hear say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come and so we come to him this morning in his table bow with me and be prepare your hearts Father, we do thank you for the great glory of being a part of this feast, this joyous celebration, this glorious kingdom that you have given to your Son. May we lay hold of the full reality of this great grace that you have given to us. Will you prepare our hearts this morning as we remember this kingdom in these simple elements of bread and wine will you fill our hearts with the reality of that great and coming day will you fill us with the joy of anticipation that we will see you face to face our Lord that we will delight and bask in the glory of your presence in ways that we can only begin to fathom now what a great honor to be a part of the wedding feast and the kingdom of the king And Lord, for those here who don't know you, if there are some, would you reveal to them their darkness? Would you reveal to them the blindness of their heart? Would you reveal to them their apathy towards the things of God and toward Christ and cause them to repent and know the glorious blessing of salvation today? Lord, we want you to be honored as we now Remember your sacrifice for us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Why don't you prepare your hearts in prayer as the men pass out the elements and Ruth plays for us. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says this, speaking of the fruit of the Spirit of God in their life of salvation. He says that they were strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. For He rescued us from the domain or the authority of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. To say He rescued us from the authority of darkness is to say that before that rescue, we were under the authority of the evil one. We were under the authority of the devil. Think about that. That is a sobering, sobering thought. And yet, in grace, He rescued us. He redeemed us. And in His Son... He has brought us into His glorious kingdom. And it is that glorious gospel of Christ and that kingdom that we proclaim in this taking of the bread and of the cup. And as Paul warned those Corinthian believers, we would, I would be unfaithful to not warn you that if you do not know Christ or if you are holding on to some sin that you are unwilling to deal with, if there is some relationship you are unwilling to mend, some sin you are willing to repent of, then do not take the bread and the wine. Let it pass until you are right with God through Christ. If you do it unworthily, if you do it in rebellion, if you do it in hypocrisy, it will bring the discipline and the judgment of God. That's what Paul says. But if you are right with the Lord, then we invite you to join us. Following the words of Paul to the Corinthians, he says, I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and we remember his body broken for us. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup, of course, was only a cup of wine then, and it's a cup of grape juice for us, but it is a cup that symbolizes his blood that was spilled to purchase for us the blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of our sin, union with Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom glories that are all awaiting for us in resurrected bodies on a new heaven and a new earth. All of that is ours through His blood, His death on our behalf. So He says, do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of Me. For when we do that, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's proclaim. And come you will, Lord Jesus, in great power and glory The glory of your Father and the glory of the holy angels to establish your glorious kingdom here on earth. We can lose sight of that when we see the arrogance of men so exalted around us. When we see such rebellion and disregard against your truth and against your Son. But your kingdom is real. Your kingdom is coming. Your kingdom is certain. And you will return. And how we long for that return. And we do say with the spirit and as the bride. Come Lord Jesus come. And even more we say. May we be faithful until that day you do. Faithful to your truth. Faithful to your gospel. Faithful to your honor and to your glory. Preserve us in this by your spirit. We pray in your most matchless name Lord. Amen. Uh, we'll make the closing prayer final because uh, I ran over five minutes. If we could, I forgot to mention that at the end. So uh, we have uh, kids who are ready to leave, I'm sure, and more importantly, the teachers. (laughs) So go pick up your children and uh, thank you. May the Lord bless you.